Well, good morning, church family. Uh, I mentioned uh, Buck and Val uh, there, um, as I said, uh, because uh, uh, Val's mom had moved uh, to be with the family um, uh, a few months ago, and uh, she recently passed away, and they've gone up to Michigan uh, with her. Buck was supposed to be uh, presenting the message this morning, and um, so uh, I uh, found, out <laughs> found out on Monday um, that I'd be sharing this with you. It's a real joy that it came about, in a sense, for us, because my wife and I had the opportunity in the last several months to study together the tabernacle, which, as you see, is our topic this morning. And uh, So um, continue, please, to pray for the Anderson family uh, as you remember them. And uh, we're going to jump into, as you can see there on the slide, 16 chapters of the book of Exodus this morning in 40 minutes. So buckle your <laughs> seatbelts. Uh, there are none in the pews, but anyway, we can. Uh, but I, I, it's funny, as I was kind of wrapping my mind around this and thinking about what could be the potential magnitude and length of this message, I came across a story that just gave me a, a much-needed chuckle uh, in the midst of it. Pierce, there was a lady who... Um, uh, had been moved new to a town and was looking for a church family and uh, she she found a place that she wanted to visit and in the morning she arrived and the worship began the sermon began she began to realize uh, somewhat to her chagrin that the pastor was quite known for perhaps covering too many passages too many chapters for long sermons you know that would go on and on and it was quickly clear in her in her first visit um, that that was the case here and uh, so, but she decided, you know, I'm going to make the best of it. And and uh, sermon was over, and she looked around for a, a, a church member to to meet and greet, and all the spirit of just being a good new member. And she noticed a, a brother across the aisle there, his eyes kind of at half mast as the as the sermon concluded. And she walked up to him, stuck her hand out, said, "Good morning, sir. I'm glad it's done." And he said, "Sister, I'm glad it's done too." Uh, <laughs> Not the response she expected. Hope that's not our response this morning. Uh, As I said, though, a lot of ground uh, to cover. Um, We're going to be looking at the tabernacle. Uh, This is in in our study uh, through the uh, patriarchs. Um, uh, This this comes along at the end of Exodus. Um, And uh, I know in a room like this, there are going to be some who are pretty familiar with the tabernacle and everything about it, some who are moderately familiar and some who don't even know what the word means or what it is we're talking about. So we're going to try to orient this for everyone. And um, uh, essentially, we've got to begin with the word, right? What is, what is tabernacle? What is a tabernacle? And it's, uh, the, the word is the Greek verb form of tent, okay? So literally, uh, tabernacle is to tent or to uh, dwell in a tent or to tent with someone, to uh, dwell together with, uh, to, um, uh, to room with, perhaps in the, in, the, in the vernacular, to live among, to live together. The English word tavern comes from the, uh, the history, you know, the, uh, the, the word root uh, of tabernacle. And if you think about a tavern, uh, a, a place, or some aspects of a tavern anyway, uh, a place of gathering uh, for people to be together, uh, and often taverns were the lodging for strangers among uh, a new community, a place that they were going to or perhaps as they were passing through. And interestingly, we'll see in the Old Testament tabernacle, God is the stranger who comes to dwell among humanity. 
That's a, a, just a first taste of a very profound thought that's central to the, everything that we're going to talk about this morning. I hope that really uh, comes through for you. So in our study that we've been doing together, uh, we began with a theme that God intends to glorify himself by establishing his kingdom on earth through humanity. Okay, since God intends to do that, since that is his plan, and because he's a gracious God, it follows that he would equip us, that he would empower us, and that he would Emmanuel with us, that he would be God with us in, in enabling us in his graciousness to fulfill that work. And in his word, he affirms that this is exactly what he is doing throughout all of biblical history. And thinking about this, uh, came across a quote, Buck helped me come across a quote uh, that I think is uh, a great beginning to this conversation. Author Fred Zaspel says this, what distinguishes Christianity from all other religions is that it is a revealed religion. Christianity is not about our search for God or our means of finding him. Christianity is not a religion that works its way upward. It is all about God coming to us. God in grace making himself known to us and making a way for us to enjoy fellowship with him. Profound thought there. Very central to what we're talking about. And I've been in situations, uh, when you are in situations where you're sharing the gospel with someone who's not familiar with it, and we're going to unpack this even in a little bit, uh, it's often a very helpful thing to point out, this distinction between Christianity and the other world religions. In the sense, religions are about humanity trying to claw their way somehow to this unattainable God. And Christianity, the Christian gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is about God reaching down to us in a very, very personal and a very profound way. So we take this idea and apply it into our study of the tabernacle. His establishment of the tabernacle illustrates the reality of that thought. That we see God coming to us. God making himself known to us and God's desire for us to fellowship with him. That's shocking. That's one thought uh, just to, to, to uh, penetrate our minds today. If we could leave you with this one thing. God wants us to fellowship with him. He wants fellowship with us. Put in the vernacular, as I said, God wants to room with us. He wants to room with me. And, you know, so often we approach that relationship. If you think about the roommate relationship, oh, that's okay, God. You pay the rent. You make the place for me. And, and I'll, I'll call on you if I need you. That's not what God wants. He wants that tabernacling, that, uh, that abiding relationship with us. So that this study of the tabernacle, I think, is going to help us to appreciate and to desire his presence. It's what he wants, and it helps us to desire that as well. So, as you've seen, we're going to be in Exodus 25 through 40. We're not going to be able to spend a whole lot of time going to the verses there, but I do want to begin in Exodus 24, so please do turn there, because <clears throat> I want to set the context. And in Exodus 24 and verse 12, the Lord says to Moses, this is the context of the renewing of the covenant with the people. Lord says to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandments which I have written for their instruction. And then jump on down to uh, 15. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain, that sign of God's glory. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud 
And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, I guess down below, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. And Moses entered into the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. In that, the stage is set for the passages that we're going to be in uh, this morning. Basically, 40 days, 40 nights, Moses was on the mountain with God. He received the pattern of the tabernacle in chapters 25 through 30 and the tablets containing the Ten Commandments in 31. Then an interlude occurs, a crisis occurs in great storylines and plot lines throughout all of human history. There's a crisis that occurs. Crisis is in 32 through 34. It's the golden calf incident. We looked at that previously. We're going to make a few points on that today. Uh, But then I'm going to spoil the I'll be a spoiler for you, spoil the ending for you. The tabernacle is constructed. God, God prevails in his grace and mercy. He prevails. This is essentially our outline. Uh, if you like a good, you know, uh, Roman numeral kind of outline or whatever, uh, this is it. The planning phase, 25 through 31, the golden calf incident, and then the construction phase. And we're going to dig right in uh, to the planning phase because we've got a lot of ground to cover. So planning... Uh, Anything, think of any building project that you've ever been a part of, a home project, a commercial project, church building, our, our uh, Creekside campus, the recent experience uh, with that as it's been constructed. You, you secure the financing, uh, you know the plan and the, you know the purpose, and then you develop the plans around the purpose and then you're able to build. And as we see this unfold in terms of the tabernacle, just make note of God's practicality, his wisdom, but also uh, his heart. So the first thing in the planning phase, uh, raising the resources, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, tell the sons of Israel to raise the contribution for me from every man whose heart moves him. You shall raise my contribution. Uh, this is the contribution to raise gold, silver, bronze, material, wood, oil, spices, stones for the ephod and the breastpiece. Uh, many things that the people were able to offer of their own uh, uh, resources, of their own wealth, uh, were put together into the building of the tabernacle. So God has first that plan to use the people's generosity, to use the people's uh, resources to build the tabernacle. And then he reiterates the purpose uh, in, in 25 uh, 25.8, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. So there it is, again, his purpose, his desire to dwell among his people. Look at the heart of God as, as this unfolds. And then the design. Uh, 25.9, according to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so... You shall construct it. God has a, uh, a desire, uh, an intent purpose in giving very clear. Uh, you, you, we don't have time to go into it. But if you'll take some time to review the chapters that we're going to skim through in just a minute. And look at the level of detail that God goes to. Because he is a holy God. This is his dwelling place. He wants to make that point about himself. And he wants his people to follow these instructions just so. Don't err. And we're going to see, again, some more of that as we go through. So just thumbing through together chapters 25 um, through 31, I'm just going to read the headings that are in my version of the Bible just to show you everything that's going on here. Uh, In 25, I got offerings for the sanctuary, then the Ark of the Covenant, the table of showbread. We're going to find out what these things are as we go through it. The golden lampstand, curtains of linen, curtains of goat's hair, 
Boards and sockets. Okay, talk about detail, right? Right down to the detail of boards and sockets. The veil and the screen. I'm over in 27 now. The bronze altar. The court of the tabernacle. The garments of the priests in chapter 28. That's a long one. Consecration of the priests in 29. The sacrifices. Uh, and, and there's more elaboration, certainly, on the sacrifices and the feasts as we move into Leviticus. We had some of that here at Anderson last week. The food of the priests, detail, y'all. Uh, then in 30, the altar of incense, the anointing oil. And then in 31, the skilled craftsmen. It's now getting to the level of the people who would participate and the sign of the Sabbath. So all of that is to result in something like this. Okay, there's the plan. In case you've been wondering, you hadn't seen the tabernacle, the tabernacle before, we're really getting into the, to the imagery of it now. Um, this is the basic layout, and we're going to talk more about it throughout the rest of our time together. Um, but <clears throat> one idea that just, what was the square footage of this thing? What would be the area of this thing? Uh, about two and a half basketball courts, okay? You can't arrange basketball courts perfectly into this shape, but uh, uh, in terms of the instruction that was given and the measurement of cubits, which we know what that was, I think it was about this um, you, they, they've translated in very precise, uh, very symmetrical. You see the 75 by 150, half of the whole, all these things. A very, very, very precise layout and that, uh, that, that basic idea of the square footage. It was placed in the center of the camp. Okay, Israel's on the move right now. They're mobile, they're intense. And in the middle of the camp was this dwelling place where God desired to come and dwell with his people. Um, and uh, at the gate, so here's the gate over here to the east. Uh, anybody want to guess who the tribe would be? We're going to be looking at symbolism of Jesus here in a minute. The tribe of what would be out here? The tribe of Judah would be out of the eastern gate. There begins our, our, uh, our wading into all the symbolism uh, through the gate, the courtyard, and then this is the actual tent of meeting, the actual tabernacle with two parts, uh, all of which we're going to uh, unfold for you. So, Various artist renderings through the years um, to give you now a more visual 3D kind of an idea of what it might have looked like. Uh, all of these according to attempts to illustrate the, the descriptions given uh, in Exodus. Uh, I like the kind of the North American Indian motif there with the teepees. I, I, don't, know, <laughs> I don't know who the artist was, but uh, anyway. Um, uh, probably a more accurate uh, representation of Bedouin tents here. Uh, uh, than the, the TP thing. Um, and then, but always in the midst of the camp, I really think I like this one the best because of the closeness of the tents, that it, it really wasn't separate from everyone, but it was really right in the middle of God's people. And you see there too the, um, the idea of uh, the manifestation of God's presence um, dwelling there back at the back where the Holy of Holies was. So this is an illustration of God's intent as he speaks to Moses, remember everything we've been doing up to now is just God's instruction to Moses. It hasn't happened yet, but all is not well. And we have this, this interlude uh, with the golden calf incident that, that comes our way, the break in the plot, the crisis in the plot. Uh, opposition via idolatry. The people lapsed into idolatry, uh, which created an, an opposition uh, to the plan of God. Just gonna, a couple of thoughts on this incident 
There we go. The episode threatens the covenant because the covenant had just been renewed. The, the manifestation of God's presence among his people was to be a, a manifestation of that covenant and his, his goodness to his people. Uh, and strategically, in light of the efforts of a sworn enemy who is against the plan of God, in all time, uh, uh, opposition occurs uh, between the plans for the tabernacle and its actual construction. It's seen in scripture time and time again. Constant, consistent opposition to the covenant between God and man. And the same generation that experienced the Red Sea miracle participated in the golden calf incident. From absolute glorious manifestation of God as he parted the Red Seas. And here they are in a very short time uh, engaged in idolatry, worshiping a calf of gold. And they were later disqualified from entering the land. A couple of thoughts on opposition from this, uh, this, little, um, this little interlude. Isn't opposition dependable? Uh, when we have uh, joined in with the plan and purpose of God, walking obediently, working to fulfill uh, some calling, some something he's given us, opposition occurs. Uh, even this morning, we saw it as we came in and all of the uh, air conditioning heating systems had been shut off. You'd think it would be cold, but it was actually really hot. And, uh, and you know that all had to be fixed and various things going on in the planning of the service. In all areas where we purpose to serve God, we see opposition. If you're walking obediently and you encounter it, don't be surprised. Pray. Seek the prayers of others. Uh, We do have an enemy and we are called to pray. But secondly, you know, in this case, the people were the opposition. If you're the opposition, what's the idolatry in your life? What's the thing going on in your life that the Lord uh, desires you to to sacrifice, to let go of in order to not be that source. So you're not like the people who were later disqualified from his blessing. Important things to keep in mind as we think about the opposition that's against us. So there's Charlton Heston, the Ten Commandments. I, being raised in this generation, am pretty convinced that somehow Charlton Heston is Moses. Okay, I don't know how, I don't believe in reincarnation. Okay, but... When I think of Moses, I think of Charlton Heston. So we'll let that scene, just before he's about to break the tablets, uh, kind of look down over us as we kind of wrap up this part of the story. Uh, The the tablets are, you know, shattered. Moses comes down. He sees the idolatry. Uh, God wants to just take him out. And Moses intervenes. Uh, he, he, uh, he He prays to God. He cries out to God on the people's behalf and God's own reputation if the people that he was demonstrating his relationship through, he was suddenly just to wipe them out. And um, so the Lord relents, though he does do some smiting in verse uh, 32, 35. There are consequences to this kind of disobedience. Uh, but God leads them on. He restores the tablets. Uh, and the covenant is renewed in that beautiful part in Scripture where we see the description of Moses' face shining with the glory of God. Opposition is overcome by a gracious God. And the construction phase begins. It, it, the, the plot is not destroyed. The story moves on. So we look then at uh, what happened in the construction phase. And we can do this pretty briefly, actually. In 35 through 40, can be summed up in these five or so things. Contributions were requested. Remember, it was described before that they would take the contributions. Uh, now the contributions are requested. The workmen are called. The people give. The gifts are received. Key workers are endowed with skill from God, that, that, that picture of the spiritual gifts that we're given as believers, uh, and then the tabernacle is built, 
and the tabernacle is outfitted. And again, there's that idea of what was brought about as a, as a completion of it. And again, to see the glory of God as he dwells among his people. But there's a whole, whole lot more, okay? A lot more that we're going to study. We're not done yet. So what we want to do now is walk as if we were walking through the tabernacle and look at the various elements from the gate into the court and then through into the tent of meeting, looking at each element and then looking deeper. Why do we want to look deeper? Because of this idea uh, that there is great symbolism uh, in the the tabernacle, great typology in the elements of the tabernacle. And in particular, as the story of the Bible progresses, every element of the tabernacle takes on a deeper meaning, uh, which we see ultimately fulfilled in Christ himself and what we know now in our relationship with him. So, again... There is the, the map uh, and that symbolism. You know, I mentioned it in terms of the placement of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah outside of the gate. Uh, but uh, even, the, even the tabernacle complex itself is, uh, as a whole is part of this uh, symbolism. Remember, the tabernacle is God's dwelling place with, among, in the midst of his people Israel at this point in time. We look at the life of Jesus and what was said about Jesus in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Dwelt among us, saw his glory, just as in the tabernacle among his people Israel. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, this overarching, amazing reality of God's desire to dwell with you and with me. We move through the gate, and we would come to the courtyard. The priest would be there, uh, the bronze altar, and the bronze labor. These are going to be unfamiliar terms to a lot of you, uh, but we'll just go item by item, uh, talk to you about what they were for, and then this typology, this imagery of Christ that we see in each one of them. So the priest, uh, his garb looks rather strange to us, but again, as you read the passages, there's symbolism uh, in, in, in every aspect of his garb and in his function as well. The priests were the backbone of Old Testament teaching and sacrificial ministry. Uh, they taught, they guided the people with and through and in the context of the sacrificial system, thus mediating. By enacting the sacrificial system, they were working out the, per, the propitiation, the payment for the sins of the nation. Uh, and so they were mediators uh, between God and man. Their garb, their activities were rich with symbolism. They had a heavy responsibility. There's a number of points here where we'll see that the priests would die if they did not do something exactly right because of the holiness of God, the absolute uh, uh, standards. And, and again, their need to follow through on that is, is, a, is a powerful symbolism. Christ, For there's one God, one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus He is that mediator. Since then, we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. So the high priest was symbolic of this ministry and function of Christ. The bronze altar, without being too crass about it, um, the bronze altar could be described as a great big barbecue pit. There's some some Texas vernacular for us here in Texas. Uh, uh, Things were burning on the altar uh, all the time, all day long. It was central to the sacrificial system. Uh, And the idea of sacrifice, the sacrifice of the animals, the sacrifices which were burned on the altar, central to the sacrificial uh, system. 
Uh, and we've even seen that, you know, the need of the sacrifice of animals all the way back to Genesis 3. And then uh, when, uh, when the animals had to be killed to cover Adam and Eve. And then uh, the, the Passover, when the animals were killed for the blood to be placed on the doorposts. Um, if we recall the feasts, which Brian uh, touched on last week, then the, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, uh, were all burned here. It was constant burning going on on the bronze altar. It was also the first thing you'd see uh, as you walked in where you met the priest there. Um, and in terms of the offering that was burned on the altar, the, the uh, 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 place, the, the person giving the offering would, uh, the lamb would place their hand on the head while the animal was being sacrificed. So that identification with that consequence of our sins, that, that it results in death. And in John, we read, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So again, I'll look toward Christ in the tabernacle. After the sacrifice, priests would wash at the laver, uh, purified him in preparation to enter the holy place, the tent of meeting. He had to wash so that he would not die. There was a consequence there of not properly following God's instruction. An interesting side note, the laver was made from bronze mirrors. Mirrors at that time were just polished bronze. Uh, Mirrors were offered. uh, And interestingly, the, the mirrors probably came from the people of Egypt. If you recall, as the, as the children of Israel left, the Egyptians were throwing their riches at them. There was plunder uh, from the, uh, the work of God in their release. Um, but they had the, the, the mirrors were offered um, and, and melted down, and the labor was created from those mirrors. Uh, not a symbolism of Christ, but an interesting idea that uh, there was a sacrifice of vanity that had to take place in order for the labor to be made uh, and that cleansing aspect to take place. Uh, water itself, too, has always been literally and figuratively a key element of cleansing. And seen in Jesus, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Again, foreshadowing, looking ahead to Jesus. So back to the complex, uh, just to remind you where we are. We've come in, uh, we've met the priest, the bronze altar, the bronze laver. The next place, only priests would be able to go into the holy place. And you see there are three elements in the holy place that we're going to look at. And then when we move to the holy of holies, uh, through the veil right there, and then the Ark of the Covenant uh, is there in the holy place. So that's where we're going as we, as we move through here. Um, entry to the holy place. And the Holy of Holies could only be a, a cleansed priest. And uh, in the holy place, again, three elements, the golden lampstand, the altar of in, incense, and the table of the bread or the table of the showbread. So the lampstand, uh, if you read the instructions for the covering of the tabernacle and the, and the, um, the gates, the curtains that were the gates and the veil, uh, it was a very dark place. And this would have been the only source of light in this place of God's dwelling. Uh, the, um, the lampstand was one solid piece of gold with seven branches, each of those branches with knobs. Uh, you don't see that as well in this uh, uh, rendering, but knobs, flowers, and almond-shaped bowls, uh, indicative of an almond tree, and the almond-shaped bowls held the oil uh, that, that fed, that fueled the lamps, the seven lamps. The priests would daily trim the wicks to keep the light burning. So the light was burning constantly. Um, And Jesus is fulfillment, again, in him saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light 
of life. One other New Testament reference in the lampstand, too, could be the seven uh, branches being the seven churches and the idea that we are also called the light of the world as we take Christ into the world. Then, uh, the altar of incense, the high priest burned specially selected a recipe that God gave for incense. Okay, a specially selected incense would be burned uh, on the altar of incense morning and evening. The priests saw to that. <clears throat> the wrong fire, the wrong uh, recipe, the wrong ingredient would result in death. Uh, I think Aaron's sons uh, discovered that. The wrong fire. On the Day of Atonement, uh, the altar of incense would be sprinkled with blood. Uh, the angel met Zechariah here in announcing that Elizabeth was pregnant with John the Baptist, uh, was at the altar of incense. Um, incense symbolizes prayer, and its ongoing burning uh, makes us think of Christ, who always lives at present to make that prayer of intercession for us. Ongoing, uh, sweet Sweet aroma of, of prayer on our behalf in Hebrews 7. And then the table of bread, the table of showbread, uh, was a place where the priest would place 12 special loaves representing the 12 tribes. It was a continual symbol in that of God's promises to be provider for Israel. Uh, Aaron, his sons, and future priests would eat the bread, and it would be replaced each Sabbath. I don't know if that's a seven-day. I hope the I guess the bread didn't get stale in that context, but uh, each Sabbath the bread would be replaced. And uh, the symbolism again is just is so rich and obvious. Jesus said, "I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst." So again, Jesus uh, perfectly and beautifully fulfilling that. So then, moving into the holy of holies or the uh, the most holy place, uh, both of those refer to the, the same, same idea. Um, the priest would pass the veil to the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, the Holy of Holies was a cube, uh, four sided, four equal sides, and the height was the same measurement as the sides. Uh, another interesting uh, interpretation or, or view on that was the idea of four views. Four different views on the same thing. And if you see Christ, which we're going to talk about as symbolic of the Ark of the Covenant, be the views, the four views of the four gospel writers on the person of Christ. Um, and then the, holy, uh, the, the high priest would enter uh, this place once a year uh, because God's glory rested on the mercy seat uh, in the Holy of Holies. Uh, there would be a separation known as the veil. Uh, blocking the access uh, to that place where God dwelt. The veil provided actual separation between a perfect God and imperfect humanity. It was thick. Uh, it, the description is a very heavy, heavy material. It was beautifully and symbolically designed, and it was strategically placed, obviously, between uh, God's presence and humanity. And the connection to Christ, interestingly, in terms of the veil, is in the symbolism of his death. Because as you know, at the death of Christ on the cross, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. No no explanation of how, uh, but again, this is a very, very heavy, heavy uh, material. uh, And and not only is it amazing just that that happened, but that the... um, the way was made open uh, for, for all uh, to God's presence, to relationship with him uh, through the death of Christ. Inside the Holy of Holies, 
uh, once a year, uh, the high priest would enter and approach the Ark, uh, the Ark of the Covenant on the Day of Atonement. Uh, there's so much to say about the Ark. I'm just going to, so you can see it and, and, and not just have to listen to me, just some important things to observe about the Ark of the Covenant. That it was the throne of Yahweh where he dwelt in a localized way and made manifest his presence with the people. Mercy seat was the removable lid of this hollow golden box. Inside the ark were Aaron's budding rod, a jar of manna, and the Ten Commandments written by God on the tablets. His dwelling place among his people here in the Holy Holies and his relationship with them quite literally sat above these three elements. And in a teaching on the festivals last week, Brian mentioned we were reminded that the three were reminders of Israel's rebelliousness and that uh, God's ultimate provision for this point on would be the blood of sacrifice applied to the seat so that in taking occupancy on, on it, God's people's rebellious failure would be covered by that blood of sacrifice uh, as he took up uh, the space there. Thus, the priests... It was on the mercy seat that the high priest offered the sacrificial blood once a year to atone for Kippur, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, to atone for all of the sins of the Israelites as a nation. One other just interesting thought on the ark itself, if you remember the picture a few frames ago, uh, the the term ark, the word ark, uh, there's Noah's ark, there's the ark term is used in terms of the basket that the baby Moses was placed in to preserve his life. Um, the word ark in this case is a slightly different uh, word and it has more of a, of a leaning toward, it extends toward that of a coffin, uh, that kind of a preserve, preserving thing. And just uh, if, if you think of that picture of the angels on either side, uh, of, the, of the lid and that place where the blood was placed. You think of Christ's sacrifice and take yourself forward to the time when the uh, Jesus' followers came to the tomb and uh, they were looking for the body. Uh, they didn't find the body, but they found the resting place with the two angels on either side. Again, just a, a, an interesting reference uh, to, uh, to Christ in that. So we've seen each of the elements as symbolic of Christ And we see it nowhere more profoundly than the Ark of the Covenant. Just listen to these words. When Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. I just want to pause here because that description of Christ in the Ark of the Covenant is a beautiful explanation of the gospel, the Christian gospel, the good news that we all share. And as we work our way through this and we start talking about application, we're going to talk about this idea of God wanting to dwell with you, wanting to know you, wanting to have relationship with you. And that begins with knowing him. That begins with having a relationship with him. And What we're saying here in this symbolism of the Ark of the Covenant, the sacrificial blood, is that Jesus Christ, when he lived that perfect life and died on that cross, uh, he took your sin upon him. And then when he was resurrected, he demonstrated victory over sin and death. And the Bible promises us by faith in what he did, in no other thing, not our clawing up to God, but a God extending himself to us 
through Jesus Christ, by faith in what Christ did, we can know, as John says in 1 John 5, that we have eternal life. Having that God's presence in your life begins there. It begins with faith in Jesus. And so when we turn to that place at the end of our time together of applying this, I want you to have that in your mind. Have I put my trust in Jesus and what he did on my behalf? So the plans that were given and enacted at the end of Exodus perfectly established a place for God to tent with his people. And at the end of chapter 40, God affirmed the tabernacle's construction and the people's carrying out of his instruction just so in a very, very, very profound way. The cloud covered the tent of meeting. You kind of see it coming from Sinai and coming down to the tabernacle. The cloud covered the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Even Moses was unable to enter. Um, Aaron and his sons and future priests would be able to via the sacrificial system that we're going to be studying in Leviticus to come. And all of that was true until Christ came and the rending of the veil making access to God through Christ possible. So we're still not quite to the end of the story of the tabernacle. So we want to look at one more thing that's super important to all of this is, uh, is the future of the tabernacle and where things went from this point on. So the tabernacle functioned in the camp of the people for a while until that time uh, when a very uh, special place, uh, one more permanent, one more beautiful was built in a significant piece of real estate in Jerusalem. And uh, that was acquired by David and built by Solomon, the first temple. And there's a lot of history of the first temple in terms of those ups and downs of the kings and the people's relationship with God and the idolatry and all that took place until the time of exile when the first temple was destroyed uh, by Nebuchadnezzar, 2 Kings 2, 24, and Jeremiah 52. And there's an interesting note as the temple <clears throat> was destroyed in Ezekiel um, chapters 10 and 11. There's a description as the temple's destroyed of God's glory, that manifestation of God's glory leaving. And it, it leaves the temple and it says the last place it's seen on earth at that point is on a mountain to the east of the temple, which would be the Mount of? The Mount of Olives. Okay. Keep that in mind uh, when we come, come back around here in just a minute. Uh, but then... Um, the, uh, the exile was fulfilled and the people returned to the land. And in returning to the land, they began construction of the second temple, uh, the restoration of its walls. And then uh, it was expanded in 20 BC to 66 AD by Herod, Herod's temple, the second temple under Herod, which was, come on, which was the uh, arguably in terms of architecture and ornamentation, uh, the, the pinnacle of the temple um, until what comes in the future, which we're also going to talk about. Uh, but it was, it was beautiful uh, there on the Temple Mount. Uh, it's arguable that the glory had departed. It didn't have the manifestation of the glory of God, uh, but it did have a form of glory in that this was the temple when Jesus came to dwell among us. This was the temple that he was in. So the actual glory of Christ was present in the temple. And this was uh, where Simeon, it was in this temple that Simeon, holding the baby Jesus, declared uh, 
Jesus as the glory of Israel. So the glory was very much uh, in this temple in that sense um, with, with, uh, with Christ himself. Uh, then there was the veil torn, Christ's atoning work done by faith. Uh, we, following Pentecost and the sending of the Holy Spirit, we experience God with us uh, in the very temple of ourselves, which is amazing. So that's the, the present manifestation, if you will, uh, of the temple. But the physical temple, the story isn't over. Uh, it, was, it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. Not one stone left upon another. And when you look at the present day, you see uh, what is the only uh, stones that would be, uh, there would be foundation stones uh, here, uh, and there's no evidence of the temple, and there sitting upon its site is Islam's symbolic mosque. So it seems like a very hopeless uh, end to the temple, but God's plan isn't finished yet. What we know from scripture is there will be a third temple built. We'd call it the tribulation temple. We know it's built because the antichrist desecrates it. And if he couldn't desecrate it, if it didn't exist. So something will be built. Uh, there'll be this activity uh, with the antichrist and the desecration of it. And ultimately uh, the destruction of it. And then the fourth temple during the millennial reign of Christ on earth. When Christ is actually here during the millennium uh, reigning. And in this time period, interestingly, is Christ's return as described in Zechariah 14. And the return of the glory described in Ezekiel 43. Christ returns in that description. He comes down and his feet touch down on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is split. So that place from which the glory departed is the place where Christ in his glory returns and touches back down. Just a beautiful picture, I think, of God's plan uh, that that return of his glory is at the spot of its departure and at the feet of Christ, splitting that mountain. That that ought to get us excited, (laughs) y'all. But that's not all. Uh, There's yet one more ultimate uh, thing to happen. What did we have to happen there? There we go. There we go. There we go. All right. There will be yet a new uh, heavenly temple, the eternal temple, as described in Revelation 11 and Revelation 21. I saw the new heaven, a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. God himself will be among them will dwell among them. They shall be his people. The heart of God expressed back at the beginning in the description of the building of the tabernacle, full circle, is fulfilled in an ultimate way uh, where all things have been restored and all things uh, under Christ, full circle, God's desire to be with us, his people. So as we ponder all of that, some final thoughts. From creation to the return of Christ, We behold this most magnificent idea in all of religious history, in all of religious philosophy, no comparison. God desires to live in and among 
his very own people. God with us, without parallel, in any system of religious thought. That is our gospel. That is our God. That is the message. That is the heart of our God. So, from its plan to its realization, to the temple, and to the culmination of the glorious plan, God desires to dwell with you. God desires to dwell with me. There's the cube, by the way. That's the holy of holies, the tabernacle coming down uh, at the end times. So we want to think about all of this and, and applying it to today, right? What do we do with this? A couple of thoughts I want you to think about as we wrap up. First of all, I hope that somewhere inside of you, if this, especially this is new to you, you're marveling. That God has given a clear narrative of his desire to tabernacle with me, with you. Put yourself in that personally. And the perfection and the complexity of that is we've looked, you know, we've looked back in history, we've looked forward in eternity, we've looked at the, pre, the moment of Christ, biblical recorded history, biblical prophecy, the, 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 the perfection and the complexity, all that. To me, all that says it's true. Nothing like that could be made up. This profound, profound reality. We should marvel at that. It's what he wants for us. And so ask yourself the question, do I want to tabernacle with him? Do I want to be with him? Do I want him in my life? And if so, you got to know him. And that's what we were talking about a minute ago. It begins with faith in Christ and what he did on your behalf. But you got to grow in him too. It doesn't stop there. Together, you know, we serve, we help one another to grow up, we listen to the word, we grow, we tell, we, we, we live out the reality of Christ and ask yourself, am I living out his desire that I tabernacle among others? Because that's the great commission. What Christ calls us to do as believers is to tabernacle among others. We've been emphasizing our every neighbor, the things, the opportunities for us here in this community. But there there are also the global opportunities for God's heart for the nations. God's calling us to tabernacle among others. To go and live with and be among others. We've got to think about that. It's part and parcel of this offering, this, this move toward us that he's made. So I want to give you just a couple of minutes to pray about that. I don't want to leave this moment without that opportunity to pray. And then uh, I'm going to close this, and we have one more thing. It's a real privilege of opportunity that we want to do together. So take a moment, bow your heads, and just take these things before the Lord. God, it's a profound reality that we've been talking about. We thank you for just the clear and meticulous nature in which in your word you've You've revealed these things for us. Uh, looking back at your history with your people and your, uh, your work through your son, Jesus Christ, and your expectations for the present and your plans for the future, we, I just pray that we would not, that we would leave this place changed as a result of uh, pondering these things. It should be at work in each heart here that we would be profoundly more aware of and profoundly more desirous of your desire to live with us in the way that we live with you. And Lord, just work that application in our hearts. I pray today and in the week ahead, give you thanks, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.
well, just a couple more minutes. We talked about that tabernacling among others. And we have an opportunity as a church body this morning to participate together in something. I'm going to ask Tom and Ramonda Lunsford to come up. Uh, we have the opportunity to commission a couple who are going out to tabernacle among others on our behalf. And so I want to tell you a little bit about them, and then we're going to gather uh, around them and pray. Tom and Ramonda, thank you for being here Thanks, this morning. Good morning. Uh, for those who don't know y'all and your, uh, your story, your history with Grace, why don't you give us a synopsis of that? Yeah, so uh, we grew up here at Grace Bible Church. I did uh, with my family uh, since I was about four years old. And uh, Pat and I grew up together here. Uh, we were in Sunday school uh, <laughs> together here at Grace. So, Pat, it's a real privilege just to share this moment Amen. with you sharing uh, the word and, and being able to have this time together. Uh, it was also here at Grace Bible Church that... Um, through the, the missionaries that would come through the church, getting to know the Laskaskis and the Chanawas and the Pools, um, w- what it meant to be a missionary and God's heart for the nations. And then through our time, my time, particularly in the, the college ministry, um, we were challenged to both pray for missions, but also to consider um, going as, as missionaries. So um, Grace had a huge impact on, on my life, particularly in those early years. So your first going out was where, when, for what? what was that all? Yeah, so 1991, 28 years ago, uh, we left uh, with two small children uh, for Ethiopia. We served 17 years there. Um, I studied veterinary medicine here at Texas A&M. So we served for 11 years um, using veterinary medicine. We had a vet clinic, a health clinic reaching Muslims with the gospel in Western Ethiopia. And then that grew into a ministry of really coming alongside churches um, through discipleship ministry, helping them grow in maturity in Christ, and then them, they themselves moving out into missions to share the gospel with people uh, around them. Um, and we did that more broadly across Ethiopia. Later during those 17 years, then uh, I served as director for our mission organization there, and Ramonda served as our language and orientation director for five years, a very challenging role, um, helping missionaries prepare to be effective in that country. So there was an interlude where you came back to the U.S. for a while. You've been here. What's that been about? Sure. So we came back 11 years ago, and um, God did uh, some really wonderful things in our lives in these last 11 years, the first being that he healed Tom of leukemia, which we didn't know he had when we came home, and so many say that he's living his second life now. We feel grateful to God for that. Um, During these years, we've seen all three of our children graduate from A&M. Yay for that, yeah. And they've gotten married and all have had children. We have five uh, grandsons, ages five and under, which we feel blessed to have been around for during these years. Mm. Um, We've also seen this to be a time to be near my family, especially my parents. Um, My mom passed away, and then these last 10 years have been able to be near my dad, which I feel really privileged to have been a part of. These years have also seen us um, really being able to be more effectively equipped and trained, particularly for me, in discipleship ministries, both locally and um, back in Africa. And uh, for Tom and I together to see that what God had begun in Ethiopia, he's now really opened up a lot of opportunity and doors across Africa. So we feel really privileged to be in our 50s and to be called again to go back. It kind of makes us feel like we're in our 20s again. (laughs) So we're excited about that. So the seeds were kind of 
sown for what you're about to go back and do? When, when are you leaving and what's that plan? Right, so we're going to be leaving in January and we're moving not to Ethiopia this time, but um, to Southern Africa, to Zambia. And these past uh, five or six years, we've been working alongside pastors and church leaders all across Africa, really giving them a discipleship experience and then seeing them go back into their local churches and denominations to disciple others. And so we're going to have a base in Southern Africa, um, working with those pastors, both within the, the country of Zambia and then doing a lot of traveling out from there in the surrounding countries in Southern Africa and beyond. So we'll be doing that. Uh, Ramonda in these last several years has been working in women's training, giving them um, uh, tools and skills in their own personal growth in Christ and then um, tools that they can pass on to other women. So she's working with a group of women through a a training hub in in Kenya in East Mm -hmm. Africa and then hopes to be able to develop another hub um, for Southern Africa there in Zambia. So we're sort of recommissioning you today, um, not only because you're going out again, but because you're moving your home base mm-hmm. back to Grace Bible Church and yeah. College Station. What, what, what's on your heart as, uh, as far as that goes? Um, I think the word that comes to mind is grateful, that we feel grateful to be aligned with a church that really teaches and preaches a clear gospel message around grace. And uh, we feel fully aligned with you in that. And so mm-hmm. thank you for becoming our sending church again. Um, I think we also feel blessed to have been taught God's word through you and to be supported by you and to be encouraged by you. And in return for the blessing you've been to us, we feel like it's a real privilege and blessing to represent you mm-hmm. in the small part of the world that God's given us to steward. So mm-hmm. I love in Romans where it says that your faith and our faith can be mutually encouraging to one another. And that's really what we hope to be. That's a good word. Well, we want to pray for y'all. Share some, move up this way a little bit. Share some prayer requests for us. If you're an elder pastor, former elder, or family member in the place, please come on up and uh, representative of the body. We're going to gather around Tom and Ramonda. Share some prayer requests with us. Sure. Well, like you talked about, Pat, we're in the planning phase and often the resistance phase comes right on the heels of that. And so we've been out of our house for a few months and we're uh, still a few months before we move. So it's been quite a transition, Um, some challenges. We're trying to sell our home. Uh, we're trying to get a, a work permit uh, for Zambia. So those are some, some practical things. And just pray that God would give us grace in the midst of these, this transition time. I think just um, also in regards to something less practical and more as an attitude, we really desire to go as humble servants. Um, we're returning to a country, a continent that's familiar to us, but we're also um, returning and stepping into a new calling. And so we really desire to have an attitude of humility and one that is privileged to serve the Lord there. We leave next week and we will be in Africa for a month um, until just before Thanksgiving. So we ask for prayer just for safety and travel. We'll be traveling in separate, uh, going separate places in Africa. So just for God's grace and to be faithful with the opportunities he's given us. We want to, y'all move in close, get a hand on them, uh, lay some hands on there. And Andy Rittenmeyer, would you lead us in, lead us in prayer? Father, we uh, thank you so much for this time to be with uh, Tom and Ramonda. And we pray for their return to the mission field in Zambia. Lord, we pray for um, you to be with them in their relationships with you their relationships with their family members that they're leaving. Um, 
the relationships with those pastors that they will be working alongside and encouraging. Lord, we also um, thank you for the years they were in Ethiopia, the years they were back here in the States. And Lord, we just thank you for this this, uh, great chapter uh, beginning in uh, Zambia, and we lift them to you. Lord, we pray for strength and endurance and wisdom, um, much grace. Mm-hmm. And Father, uh, most of all, we just pray that your gospel goes forth. And we uh, just uh, thank you for the opportunity to be uh, involved with them as they uh, minister there. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Church family, uh, you are blessed to go. Do come and meet Tom and Ramonda if your story, your heart has been touched by their story. God bless you this week. Go out and celebrate God with us.